You might have noticed that some people will do absolutely anything to make a name for themselves. Living a normal life, you know, going to a normal job, coming home to a normal house with a normal family, doing the average everyday things is just not satisfying for them. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be famous. The good news is, here in the 21st century, if you've got your heart set on making a name for yourself, you don't need to go it alone. There are whole websites that have been set up dedicated to helping you become famous. I came across one of these during the week and it's called How to Become Famous in Three Shockingly Easy Steps. And this is what it tells us. Step one, do something incredibly stupid and obnoxious to attract attention to yourself. Don't be afraid to think outside of the box here. This can be in the form of a video, a stunt, a hoax or just good old-fashioned vandalism. Keep in mind that as a culture, we've become become somewhat desensitised to people doing stupid things from years of watching people do stupid things. So try to think big. Step two, be sure to record your act of stupidity and publish it on YouTube. Remember that recording and documenting your act of idiocy is not optional. These days, if you don't capture something on video, you might as well go back to live in your primitive cave of obscurity. Although it's true that you might get fined or even arrested for your stunt, don't worry about it because you'll also get your name in the papers, the blogs, on TV and other ridiculous websites. Just make sure that they spell your name correctly. And step three, get rewarded for your idiocy and bask in your newfound fame. It's that easy. Three steps to make a name for yourself. Of course, making a name for yourself isn't a modern thing, is it? This morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel. It's one of those stories that are taught in Sunday school, but it's not really a story for kids. It's rich and it's profound and it speaks very strongly into the reality of the human heart. And not only is this an enormously important passage theologically. It also forms a really important structural purpose in the book of Genesis that we've been working through this year. You see, chapters 10 and 11 that we're working through over the next few weeks or so serve as a transition, if you like. From the start of chapter 12 and for the rest of the Old Testament, in fact, we're going to be following the line of Shem, From the line of Shem comes Abraham and the nation of Israel. But before we move on and start to focus on the line of Shem, this morning we have one last look back to what the world was like outside of God's chosen line. And the picture that we'll see this morning is 
remarkably and sadly similar to our world today. Despite the events that are depicted in our passage this morning occurring more than 4,200 years ago, they're typical of what we see in our world today. Impotent, yet pretentious humanity shaking their fist at God, rebelliously telling him that they're going to do things their own way. This morning as we look at this passage, we're going to split it into two halves. We're going to see humanity's attempts to build and then God tear things down. So firstly, in verses 1 to 4, we see humanity build. First one, after the flood, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Everyone spoke the same language, used the same words. There were no barriers to communication. And as the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? As the population grew and spread out, as they were travelling, they found a beautiful plain. Maybe it was close to shops and good schools. And so, what did they do? They decided to settle there. That's fair enough, isn't it? That's basically living the dream, isn't it? Well, the problem is, no, it actually wasn't the right thing to do. You see, it's exactly what God had told them not to do. Exactly what God had told them not to do. If you remember way back to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, God says, fill the earth and subdue it. And then again, after the flood, God repeats the same instruction, this time to Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God had told his people very clearly Two times, in fact, to fill the earth. They were fulfilling the first part of that command. We saw from the table of nations last week that they were having children, weren't they? So they were doing that part right. But they were disobeying the second bit of that command to spread out and to fill up and to occupy the whole earth. And in verses 3 and 4, we see why they decided to disobey. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Their decision to settle down in Shinar was not an innocent decision. It wasn't made because Shinar, which we now know as Babylon, was a nice part of the world with water views and was close to a train station. This was a defiant, rebellious shake of the fist at the command of God. This was not naive. This was not innocent. They chose very deliberately, to disobey the explicit command of God. They decided that they knew better. 
and that they weren't going anywhere. Sorry, God. We don't want to spread out. We like it here. It's safe. We're here with our friends and family. It's comfortable, so we're going to stay here. Instead of using the benefit that they had of having a single language to govern the whole earth and to give thanks to God in doing that, they decided to rebel. They decided that they would be the ones to determine what was right and wrong. Back in Genesis 3, we saw Adam and Eve make the same decision, didn't we? That they knew better than God and that they were going to decide what course of action to take. And here, just a few chapters later, we see the same rebellious attitude again. We humans have all decided that we want to call the shots, that we want to be in charge, that we're going to decide what's best for us. My friends, don't these verses show the reality of the human heart? Despite how clever we think we are, without God taking the initiative and calling us to himself, left to ourselves, we will depart from God. We will rebel against him. Sociologists will tell you that the reason for evil in the world is as a result of environments. It was that you were brought up in a difficult family or aren't living in the right place. But here in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see the truth, don't we? If we're left to our own devices, we will oppose God. We won't choose to worship or love God, but we'll choose to do things our own way. Despite these people of Shinar thinking that they know better than God, there's a little bit of irony in the way their actions are presented here. Who was it that wrote the book of Genesis? It was Moses, wasn't it? And Moses did have just a little bit of experience of brickmaking from his time in Egypt, did he not? If you don't know that story, have a look at the book of Exodus and you'll see what I'm talking about. And here Moses is being just a little bit cheeky in the way that he describes the actions of these people. Because he knows that their decision to build using bricks rather than stone was actually a really dumb move. These people thought that they were using the most advanced and best technology that was out there. It was human invention at its best. They were using kilns, they were baking the bricks. But Moses knows that if you wanted to build a really big, really strong, long-lasting monument, you don't use bricks. You use stone, don't you? Even though it was going to take a bit more effort because there wasn't a lot of stone in the Mesopotamian Valley where these builders were working. There were lots of materials to build bricks. But if you wanted to build a long-lasting structure, you'd go to the effort to bring in bricks. But they chose not to do that. Just by the way that he tells the story, and if you blink, you'd miss it. Moses is already setting us up for the fact 
that these people, despite wanting to build a tower that's going to reach up to the heavens, they haven't even chosen the best building materials they had available. They're not as clever as they think. And in verse 4, we see what it is that they want to build. They want to build a city. But more than that, they want to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. Now, it's really important to understand what is going on here. It's not just that the people wanted to build a tall tower. God is not opposed to cities or tall buildings, although I suspect he might be opposed to that 35-storey monstrosity being built in Liverpool, but that's by the by. There's more to this story than that. This is not just the Bible's version of Jack and the Beanstalk. It's not the height of the tower that's the issue. It's the thinking behind it. You see, what the people decided to build is probably not best described as a tower, but as a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was basically a giant staircase with a little room on the top. It wasn't a temple, although often ziggurats did have temples built at the bottom. It was more a stairway to heaven, if you like. And Led Zeppelin thought they'd come up with that. They didn't. It was basically meant to be a resting place for the gods. The little room that was up at the top was meant to be a resting place for the pagan god to come as he came down from heaven. And the idea was was that the pagan god would rest in that room and be easily accessible by the people when they needed him. It was genuinely putting God in a box. Some of the ziggurats that have been discovered by archaeologists have actually been found to have little bells at the bottom of the stairs so that you could summon the God when you wanted him and you didn't have to tire yourself out by walking up to the top. We're ingenious, aren't we? And about 30 ziggurats have been discovered by archaeologists throughout the Mesopotamian Valley. Every major city, including Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, had a ziggurat. So when the people said that they wanted to reach up to the heavens, they weren't really concerned about height. They were talking about reaching up to the heavenly realms, to the gods, and wanting the gods to come down and inhabit the little box, the control box that they had created for him. So not only was this idolatry, because by this stage they had discarded Yahweh as the one true God, but it was also wanting to control God, to determine the rules, to say we're in charge, God, not you. Not only that, they were very, very proud, weren't they? They wanted to make a name for themselves. I love the way that John Calvin describes this attitude. This is the perpetual infatuation of the world to neglect heaven and seek immortality on earth where all is fading and transient. Isn't that the perpetual infatuation of our world too? Every night our TV shows, our TVs are filled with people all wanting to make a name for themselves, to become famous. And they're willing to do all manner 
of crazy and weird things to bring it about. Cook, go on a desert island and compete in challenges, renovate a house, marry a stranger, have a cheap wedding, lose weight, swap partners, go undercover, try to win someone's affection, show the hidden talents you've got. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? And the scary thing is, that's only some of the things that people will do. And in our world today, we've even turned beautiful acts of generosity into opportunities for plaques to be mounted and for glory to go to the generous benefactors who donated. Nothing's changed, has it? These people wanted by their own efforts to make their name great, to achieve glory and immortality at their own hands. We're going to see this play out in the coming weeks in the way that God calls Abraham because God says to Abraham, Abraham, I will be the one who will make your name great. I will turn you into a nation. I will do all of that for you. But here, outside of God's chosen line, we see people trying to make their names great by their own efforts. I wonder, who are we? Who are you most like? The people of Shinar or Abraham? Are we focused on making the name of God great, on glorifying and magnifying him? Or do you sinfully try to promote your own name, your own fame, your own greatness? What motivates you? What motivates you at work? Is it to declare the glory and the goodness of God and to show the difference that he makes to your workmates? Or is it to climb the corporate ladder so that everyone will look at you and say, what a success. How about your ministry? Are you looking to bring all of the glory and honour to God because he's a great saviour? Or are you looking to show what a great leader, what a great servant, what a great minister of programs you are? To help you answer that question, let me ask you a diagnostic question. How do you respond when someone ignores your contribution? How do you respond? How do you respond when someone doesn't give you the credit for all the time and the effort that you've put in? Or even worse, when someone asks you to serve in a way that clearly doesn't recognise your gifts and abilities. It's way below your station in life. It's cleaning the toilet or locking up. How do you respond? Whose fame are you seeking? Because when humanity sets out on its own, as we see here in the people of Shinar, apart from God, it's always going to be an exercise in futility. And here, in verses 5 to 9, we see God's response. And Moses starts the second half of this passage with a bit of humour again. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
These people had set out to build a tower so tall, so great that it would reach up to the heavens. But yet, God needs to come down in order to see it. It's ironic, isn't it? In the way that he describes this, Moses is mocking these builders. He's showing just how futile their efforts are. Now, of course, we know that God could see the ziggurat from heaven. He can see all things everywhere. But what Moses is trying to do is point out for us just how pitiful, how sad, how, how lacking the efforts of these builders were. And in verses 6 to 9, we see the way that God responds. And it's really important that we understand what's going on here because the first reading of verse 6 might give you the impression that things are a bit out of control, that God's getting a bit worried here, as if the people of Shinar were just too much of a match for him and he's scrambling and he's panicking and he's not sure what to do. But we need to remember that God's in control. God's not powerless. He's not running scared of humanity. He's just destroyed all but eight people in a flood. What we're seeing here is God's concern, his gracious concern for humanity and the way when we're left to our own ways, we can monumentally stuff things up. God's concern here is that humanity, when united together under one language, one system of communication, they were rising up against God. They were mucking things up spiritually entirely. So it's not a lack of power on God's part that we're seeing here, but God recognising the depraved nature of the human heart and the way that we as a society, as a race, can go way off track when we join together opposed to God. By his grace, what we're actually seeing here is God protecting us from ourselves. And so what does God do? Well, he scatters the people. If you've ever wondered how we manage to have so many different cultures and languages, given we've seen that we all descend from three different people, here's your answer. Despite what you might be told at school, we didn't evolve from monkeys and move from grunting to the languages that we have today. In fact, the diversity of languages that we have here today, even in this room, is both an act of God, but also a judgment of God. Have you ever thought of it that way? Our languages is actually a judgment from God. That's why Germans don't understand French. The English don't understand Cantonese. Greeks don't understand English. And nobody understands teenagers. <laughs> Sorry. Paul mentioned this last week, but in case you missed it, before we move on, you might have noticed that, that here in chapter 11 we see the world united with one language, whereas in chapter 10 we saw all of the different tribes and nations having their own language. 
Now, it's not that, that Moses has got the chronology mixed up here. He's done this deliberately. And it's for the same purpose that we spoke about earlier. What he's trying to do is he's, he's showing us, he's giving us one last picture of the world outside of God's plan before God graciously chooses Abraham. And he's saying that humanity hasn't changed after the flood. We're still sinfully rebelling against our creator. Sin has continued. And then in chapter 12, we see God act. There's real irony in the way that God judges the people here. As Anna read earlier, we saw that the people, they were so determined to not be spread out that they settled down. And so God brings about in judgment exactly what they didn't want. In the flood, humanity was judged with destruction. Here at Babel, humanity is judged with dispersion. The tower is left incomplete. And the tower stands as a reminder of the judgment of sin. I don't know about you, but I find it quite funny when you drive through an estate and you see a block or a house that's half completed. You kind of chuckle a bit internally, don't you? You kind of look at that house and kind of think to yourself, those people didn't plan properly. They ran out of money. You know, they weren't thinking ahead. And that's exactly what the Tower of Babel is designed to do. It's a monument that stands to the fact that man rebelled against God. And you know the scary things, my friends? From the genealogy that we looked at last week, we can work out that this happened 102 years after the flood. 102 years after all but eight people had been wiped out in judgment for sin. 102 years later, we're already shaking the fist at God. Now, I know what some of you might be wondering. We don't quite know how this dispersion occurred. We don't know whether it was instantaneous or whether it just happened naturally as people were drawn to the people that they could understand who shared a common language moving forward and they moved off in those groups. But whatever the case is, it's clear that this is a judgment from God for his rebellion. Now, there is, of course, as we close, one question remaining. What on earth has this got to do with us? And really, it's quite simple. It goes back to where we first started. This passage exposes our basic problem as humans. We, you and I, do exactly the same thing as these arrogant tower builders. We say to God, God, I'll take it from here. I'm in control. You just, you just stay in that little box that I've designed for you. I'm in charge from now on. That's the basic human problem, is it not? That's how we all act. That's what we all do. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet decided to follow Jesus, that might come as a bit of a shock to you. My friend, your greatest problem 
is not the fact that you claim a few dodgy deductions in your income tax return, that you're not the best husband or wife, that you lie sometimes or you're not that great at getting to church. Your biggest problem is the same as the rest of us. You've said no to God and insist on running your own life. Whilst it might have seemed like a good idea to take responsibility and control of your life, when you think about it, when it's God we're talking about here, the God who gave you life, who deserves all honour and glory and praise, that decision to wrestle control back doesn't seem that sensible anymore, does it? But of course, acting like this isn't just limited to those who haven't yet entrusted themselves to Christ. Those of us who have given ourselves to the Lord Jesus are still made of the same stuff and we're well and truly capable of the same rebellion. We're more than capable of acting as if we're God and as if God was there to serve us, as if God was there for our convenience. How do we do that? A few diagnostic questions to close. I wonder, do we ever act as if our time is our own? When you plan out your day, your week, your year, do you do it in consultation with God? Or do you do it without thinking about him and his priorities and expect him to somehow come through for you at the end? We act as if our plans, our agenda, our ideas are the most important things of the world, in the world. And sometimes we even get angry when God doesn't resolve things for us according to our timing and our schedule. Although we'd never go so far as to say it, do we act as though we're in charge and as though it's God's job just to come down the stairs of the ziggurat when we determine and fix our problems the way that we want him to? I wonder, do we ever act as if our money is our own? Do we plan our budgets or use our credit cards as if we've earned all of the money that we've got and as if the only priority we have is to spend it on our own pleasure? Do we, although we'd never be so bold as to say it, have this silent expectation that it's God's job just to keep the money flowing? We'll turn to God in prayer and petition when there's redundancies looming at work or we're starting to get a bit tight. But we basically say to God, you keep the money flowing, God, and I'll look after it. Would we do that? Even when it comes to our future, Do we decide what's next? Do we act as if God has nothing at all to say about the way that we live our lives? The way that we plan our future? The places that we buy? The ministries that we serve in? The people that we marry? The friends that we have? Even the way that we spend our retirement? Do we act as if we're in charge? And we leave God just in that comfortable little box. It might be... 9.30 till 11 on Sunday mornings. 
There might be a bit of extra time during the week, but by and large, God's in a box. There when we need him, but not really an essential part of our lives. Although it looks different for each of us, that is our basic human problem. Is it not, my friends? We find it so easy just to tell God to sit in his box until we need him. So how should we respond? Well, we should respond in prayer and repentance and the daily recommitment of our lives to him. God's desire, as we see in his word, is not for us to seek satisfaction in glorifying ourselves, in glory coming to our own names, but instead that our satisfaction is found in him. His desire is that our security is not found in cities or towers or bank account balances or houses or jobs, but in him alone. And my friends, that security is found only in Jesus. Because just as God came down at Babel, he came down again in the person of Jesus. And in Jesus, rather than being dispersed to all four corners of the world, those of us who are in him are brought back to life and unity with each other and with God as he intended.